We will continue to go through the book of John this morning. I wonder how you're all doing in your scripture memorization. This is a long scripture this month. I've had some of you uh, share that with me. I understand it is a long one, but I think it's one that we've seen a lot over the past few months, past number of months, because we've been looking at it at the beginning of our messages together. But let's say it together this morning again. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John 20, 30, and 31. Life in His name name. What an, what an interesting thought, what an interesting question to be happening to be exploring on this day when we are in John chapter 11 and we're continuing to work through this chapter and we're going to be confronted with the very reality today of death and life. Life in his name. And there's some questions that are going to be unpacked in our text. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 17 to 28 today. You can turn there a while. But three of the questions we want to explore in our time together this morning is, where do we go in difficult times? To whom do we turn? And as we've, all of us probably in this room have gone through a difficult season, a difficult time, who do we turn To whom do we turn in those difficult seasons? What can we learn from Martha's faith? Martha is in the midst of a crisis here. Her brother has just passed away. She's approaching Jesus who's on his way. What can we learn from her faith in the midst of her grief? And finally, what can we learn from Jesus' response to Martha in her grief? Do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is and are our lives a reflection of that belief? This and these are the questions we want to explore this morning as we go into John chapter 11. Let's pray. Father God, you unite us around your word as a community of believers and we are thankful that you have called us out You've called us out and you've called us into community around the truths of this living and active word. Truths that are timeless. Truths that are absolute. And Father, today in John chapter 11, you have us at the intersection of death and life. We see emotions. We see grief, pain, heartache. Loss. But along with that, Lord, we also see hope, faith, and belief. Father, we pray today that you would guide our time, that you would use it to encourage our hearts, to renew our minds, that we would leave this place today challenged and motivated to grow and a greater love for you, and a greater love for each other. And Father, we pray through our study this morning that you would receive all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. John chapter 11, verses 17 to 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. What do we have here? What is going on? Martha is out here meeting Jesus. He's not quite at her house yet. Back at her home in a tomb, there is a wrapped and perfumed dead body laying. It's the body of her brother. What is happening And there was a popular belief in the day that after a person had died, this was kind of a popularly held Jewish belief, that the soul of that person might hover over the body for three days, attempting to re-enter it, and after three days, it would leave. So some scholars had surmised that indeed this might have been the very reason that Jesus waited four days to perform this miracle. Four days would allow for those who believe this to see that indeed Lazarus was truly dead. He was not just simply being reanimated or brought back to life by his own spirit's power, but that Jesus was indeed resurrecting him from the dead. He's back at Bethany. He's not far from Jerusalem, about a two-mile walk. In fact, I think it's 1.73 miles from Jerusalem in Bethany and as customary many had gathered for this time of mourning that followed the loss of a loved one just as we gather to mourn and grieve when we lose our loved ones it was the custom of the Jews as well to gather to console to grieve and it was probably a much longer time that they stayed together but important Nonetheless, in gathering what we know about Mary and Martha and their family, it appears that their family was very well known. There were many coming from Jerusalem, the city, to mourn and to console them. The gospel writer has clued us in from the beginning of John 11 that both Mary and Martha would play a very important role role in this miracle John chapter 11 2 it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair an account that we're going to study when we get into John 12 John eleven five. 5 now Jesus loved Martha and her sister 
and Lazarus. This family was regularly visible throughout the ministry of Jesus. And the gospel writers never leave us with any doubt that Jesus truly loved Mary, Martha, and her family. And it was indeed this love, as we reflect back on last week, this love for Mary, for Martha, for Lazarus, for their family, it was one of the motivating factors behind Jesus performing this miracle. And so we find in verse 20, Martha is grieving, as any of us would grieve, the loss of her brother. And in her grief, she moves towards Jesus. Look at verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now what catches you off guard here? I'll tell you what catches me off guard. It's that we, many of us here, know Martha. We know her character. She's busy. She likes to be hospitable. She's one who cares very much about hospitality. And what catches me off guard here about Martha is that she's willing to leave all of those guests behind. Everyone who had had come to console, everyone who had come to mourn and grieve, she leaves behind to go and greet Jesus knowing that He's already on His way. She must have had a true and deep love for Jesus, loving Him as one would love their own brother. And this is the Martha we read of in Luke chapter 10. And let's look at the account because it's amazing to see some of the similarities in this account between Mary and Martha. Luke chapter 10, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. How strikingly similar the comparisons between these accounts. Here we have Martha in Luke chapter 10. She's welcoming. She's serving. She's also quick to speak her mind. Some of us love that about Martha, don't we? She just tells Jesus exactly how she feels. She's not one to beat around the bush. And we find her sister, Mary, here in Luke chapter 10. What's she doing? She's sitting. She's listening. She's Waiting, waiting. And now look at our account today. Once again, it's, it's Martha doing the stuff. She's welcoming Jesus. She goes to meet him. She's serving. She's speaking her mind. Or she's about to. Mary, once again, is sitting. She's waiting. And as we will find out in verse 29, Mary does not yet know that Jesus is nearby. Someone had informed Martha But Mary was not yet aware of this. We see this in verse 29. Martha here is practicing a life pattern that we find in James chapter 4, verse 8. It's a pattern that's applicable for us, church. We've talked about it before. In difficult times, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. 
This is a display of the hope and the faith that Martha has in Jesus. Jesus can do something about this. He can. And her approach is purposeful. It's deliberate. She has some things that she wants to express to Jesus. There's some things on her mind. She's not going to sugarcoat it. She's very direct with him. And in the midst of her pain, she shares her true feelings with Jesus. Her true feelings. She's not trying to hide. I'm okay. She's hurting. Look at what she says in verse 21. She states it very simply. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We can all sense the disappointment in that statement. But her faith is evident. But her disappointment is as well. And neither Martha nor Mary are aware yet that Jesus' absence was purposeful and deliberate. They have no idea. And neither could understand in these moments of grief and hurting that it was actually more loving for Jesus to be absent than for him to be present. They could not understand that yet. And church, to many, to many, maybe even for some of us as we sit here, the responsible thing for Jesus to do would have been to go right away. We talked about this last week. Just go to be present for the death of Lazarus, to be with the family as they grieved and they mourned, to walk through that loss with them, to do something. But Jesus knew the motivations of his heart, and he perfectly always performed the will of his Father. The loving thing for Jesus to do in this moment was to be absent. And there's a theme in John chapter 11 and John chapter 12 that starts to unpack itself. And it's an important theme in how we understand and apply the gospel. It's a powerful theme. It's a theme that has changed my life. It's a theme that has changed the way that I think about what the gospel is and how I define the gospel. And the theme is this, John chapter 11, John chapter 12, often... In our lives, what many deem to be the most responsible thing to do is not always the most loving thing to do. Such an important reality to come to the conclusion of. Jesus never gives us a load of responsibility. In fact, He takes it away. He says this, my burden is easy, my yoke is light. He says, a new command I give you. What is it? Love. Strapped with the burden of hundreds and hundreds of commands in the Old Testament. Jesus comes and takes all of the responsibility away and says, a new command I give you. Love. So we're not to become defined as children of responsibility with a nature of responsibility. We're come to be defined as children of love with a nature of love. Letting our attitudes, actions, 
and behaviors be motivated by love. And you'll hear me say this a thousand times. Love will make us more responsible than responsibility ever could. Love will make us more responsible than responsibility ever could. And Martha does not yet realize that Jesus' behavior has been motivated by love. At this point, she only recognizes what she believes to be the irresponsibility of Jesus' actions. Jesus, why weren't you here? Yet she's willing to look beyond this apparent irresponsibility because she knows that Jesus has the power to do something about it. Martha, in this, displays her faith in God's unlimited potential. Look at verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Martha displays this incredibly active faith here. Lord, you, you were not here. You did not come. If you would have been, you could have helped my brother. But even now, even now in my disappointment, even now in my hurt, even now in my heartache, in the midst of this loss and grief and pain, I know that you can do something. Whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Some of you have heard the name of this great preacher from the past, his name was Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon preached an entire sermon on those two words. An entire sermon, even now. Now I would submit to you that if we started breaking the book of John down into two-word sermons, we'd be here a long time. <laughs> Imagine how long it took his congregation to get through the Gospel of John. This woman had just buried her brother. Isn't death final? And how many of us find that we are often in our most weak and desperate times when we're facing life's most difficult trials and circumstances? But I wonder how many of us have also found the strength that only comes from the Spirit to say in those moments even now. Even now. Listen to what Spurgeon says about Martha's faith. Quote, Martha had a fine faith. If we all had such an honest belief in Christ as she had, many a man who now lies dead in his sins would ere long hear that voice which would call him forth from his tomb and restore him unto his friends. Martha's faith had to do with a dreadful case. Her brother was dead and had been buried, but her faith still lived. And in spite of all things which went against her, she believed in Christ and looked to Him for help in her extremity. Her faith went to the very edge of the gulf, and she said, but I know that even now, whatever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it to thee. End quote. Martha's even now, when I read that this week, for whatever reason, my mind immediately went back to an Old Testament account 
And I wonder if any of you can guess what that might be. There's an account in the Old Testament that relates very closely to this even now kind of faith. There are these three individuals in the Old Testament who are standing before a king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And what's he commanding Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to do? Bow down. And they refuse. And what do they say? Our God is able to save us from this calamity, but even if He does not, we will not bow. What a faith. What a faith. This is Martha's faith in this moment. Even now, Lord, I know that You are able to do something. Friends, there's sickness. There is loss. We buried a good brother this week in Howard Combs. And I heard news this morning as the Sensenigs came in that Joanna's father has passed away. John. There are difficult times in life. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That is true. And can we have this even now kind of faith? Even now, Lord, I know that you can give me the strength to get through this. She has no idea what he's about to do for her brother. But she knows that he can do something for her. True faith, genuine faith, when tested, worketh unto patience. And Martha is not quick to assume that now that her brother is dead, Jesus is unable to do anything. She's also not quick to demand that Jesus raise her brother from the dead. Jesus, raise him up! I know you could do something. Help me feel better about this situation and fix my brother. Raise him from the dead. No, you don't hear the tone of that at all in her words. What does she say? Whatever. Not what I want you to ask of God. Not what I think God should do. Those things are absent. The submissive tone. Whatever you ask from God. And the knowledge in her mind that if Jesus does anything in this situation, He is doing it in willing submission to the Father's desires. Jesus' response to Martha here is not defensive. He doesn't get upset. Sometimes when we're confronted and someone comes up and speaks their mind to us, our first response is to kind of clam up and get defensive. I mean, Jesus could have been defensive about his apparent inactivity in this situation. But that's not where he is. He knows that his actions and behaviors were in the best interest of Martha's family. And church, there's a lesson here for us. When our behaviors are motivated by love, even when some may deem them irresponsible, we have no need to get defensive to have to give a defense when we're motivated by love and compelled by Christ. This is not the time to win an argument, to appear self-justified. Jesus could have looked and said, well, wait till you see what I'm about to do, Martha. Chill out. It's going to be okay. He could have laid out 
a defense as to why he was absent for their good and for the Father's glory. But he doesn't do that either. It's not the right time. Instead, Jesus does something that's so incredibly loving and gentle and caring and kind. He rewards Martha's faith by giving her hope. Look at what he says in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Jesus' delay in performing this miracle is much like the delay that we saw when he healed the official's son in John chapter 4. Remember the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said in the very next statement, go, your son will live. What does he say to Martha right now? Your brother will will rise again. He doesn't say, oops, uh uh-oh, yes, you're right, Martha, I should have been here, my bad, let me fix this really quick and respond and react to what man wants or what you want. He doesn't do that. The Father already had this perfect plan established from the beginning and Jesus is walking in perfect harmony with the will of the Father. He waits. It's a delay with purpose and design so that we might, church, that we might fully see the glory and the majesty of the Father and the glory and the power of the Son. Remember back at the beginning of John chapter 11 why Jesus said that He tarried in going to Lazarus so that the Son might be glorified And the Father might be glorified. I also love how kind and gentle Jesus is being with Martha here. She's hurting. He knows this. And Jesus is acting in a very pastoral manner here towards her. There's humility. There's love. He's giving Martha hope. Martha understands this. And as she realizes this, she falls back on what she knows. She leans into the knowledge of what she believes to understand as the resurrection. Right? Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And the only way that she can justify this or understand this in her mind is to go back to her previous understanding of what the resurrection meant. So look at what she says in verse 24. She responds to him, I know that He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's heard that reality from the many well-wishers who had come to console her family. Many, I'm sure, coming and saying, He's in a better place. He'll be resurrected on the next day. Or on the last day. And and friends, similarly, when we experience loss, we have many well-wishers. Many who come to console us and to walk through this grief and mourning with us. And they share similar sentiments. They are in a better place. That's true. It's absolutely true. We know this. But is this the only wisdom and advice that Jesus had come to offer Martha on this occasion? Something that she already knew to be true? It's almost like she's responding rotely like, Jesus, I already know what you're going to say. Yes, my brother will rise again on the last day. I understand this. But she had no idea that Jesus was fixing to shock the world. 
No idea. Lazarus' last day happened to be this very day. His physical, bodily resurrection was not some far-off theological construct offered to console and comfort him in this time of loss. His resurrection was imminent. It was here, and it was now. The bountiful life giver is present, and with one breath, he's going to put death on notice. With one breath. Martha, are you struggling with the loss of your brother? Does his resurrection seem far off? Are you battling over the questions of life and death? Let me help to redirect your focus on what really matters in this time. And so he redirects her attention towards himself, towards the present, and towards life. This is what Jesus is doing here. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And continue in verse 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha, put your faith in me. Move on from this abstract theological construct about what you think is going to happen on the last day and focus on me. Jesus is so much more. He tells us in John chapter 6, 27 that He gives us bread from heaven. And in verse 35 that He's the bread of life. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. And in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread from heaven and the bread from life. The giver of life, the sustainer of life, the very meaning of life itself. He has power over life. John chapter 5, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life. To whom he will. 525, very, very soon, right? Very soon. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. And guess what? For Lazarus is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So Jesus adds these two lines then afterwards in verse 26 that seem rather paradoxical, perhaps even a bit contradictory. Let's unpack them slowly. Look at verse 26. This is an interesting line. It looks like Jesus may be contradicting himself here, doesn't it? Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever believes in me will never die. So, do we die or not? Do we live or not? What are you saying here, Jesus? And we have often noted that throughout the book of John, one of the reoccurring kind of repetitious things that we see is first Jesus deals with the physical, and then he deals with the spiritual. We see this with Nicodemus. 
We see this with the woman at the well. We see this with the people at the festival. When Jesus comes to Nicodemus, he starts with the physical birth. Or sorry, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he starts with the physical birth, then the spiritual rebirth. Jesus starts with the woman at the well with physical water. Then he moves towards living water. He begins with the bread in John chapter 6, then moves on to the bread of life. First the physical, then the spiritual. So here in this statement, we deal first with the physical. Here on earth, friends, physically speaking, physically speaking, we will all experience death unless Jesus comes back before we die. That's a reality. Death is natural. Death is a physical reality, physically, that we will all most likely face. Eternal life, everlasting life, is supernatural. It's a free gift given to all who believe so that those who believe will never taste death. Theologian Herman Ritterbos offers a common definition to this verse. He says, quote, Everyone who believes in Jesus, in life as in death, participates in the resurrection and the life that Jesus is and that he imparts. End quote. Jesus, the resurrection, and the life has accomplished his purpose. And friends, here is the incredible truth for us, church. The resurrection is here and it's now. It's an everlasting reality. For Martha, it was an event that was going to happen on the last day. That's how she understood it. It was far off. One day, Jesus, I know, one day, he'll raise from the dead. And Jesus says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. He's correcting her theology. It is happening right now. He is standing right before her just as He stands before us. For those who believe, church, there is no death. Only life. For those of us who believe, life upon life upon life. And this is not some dreamy, wishy-washy, wishful thinking, maybe it will happen, maybe it won't happen, blind kind of hope. That's not what this is. Lazarus is truly in time and space. This is a physical, historical event that truly happened. Jesus is about to resurrect him from the dead, proving once and for all he is the resurrection and the life. This is real, church. For those of us who are in Christ, we are not living under the power of death. We have been resurrected. For us, there is nothing but life and life and life for eternity. Friends, man will live forever, but some will live for eternity unto death, and some will live for eternity unto life. And throughout John, we have seen the characteristics of death. Death is characterized by sin, separation, darkness, hunger, thirst, fear, anxiety, loss. These are all the things that accompany death. But life, that you may believe and have life, life is also defined in the book of John and is characterized by life. By light, by provision, love, relationship, 
gain. Martha's future in her mind is present right now. Friends, the book of Romans couldn't be any more painstakingly clear to us about this hope in Romans chapter 8. Death cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So what is Jesus going to ask Martha to do here? He's going to ask Martha to affirm her belief. It's interesting because I think as I said before, she knew that Jesus could do something for her. But did she truly believe that because of His person, that He could also do something for her brother? And this is not, do you believe that I can raise your brother from the dead? That's not what Jesus is asking here. What He's saying is, do you believe into me? Martha, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? And her response is an affirmation of her hope in both the person and the work of Jesus. Look at verse 27. She said to Him, Yes, Lord, I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And the word believe here is in the perfect tense, meaning that not only had she believed, but that she is continuing in her belief. Her belief never wavered. I continue, Lord, in my belief. Even though my brother lays dead in the tomb, I still believe in who you are, in your person, and what you're able to do and accomplish in your work. It is a confession that calls into remembrance both Nathaniel's confession in John chapter 1, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Peter's confession in the book of Matthew, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Church, Jesus is everything. He's everything. He's Israel's messianic hope. All that they were waiting for, He is the Christ. And He's also the Savior of the world. Martha's faith here should serve as an example to us. It's a faith that is believing before seeing. She knows that Jesus can do something. She believes in who He is, but she has no idea what He's about to do. She's believing. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Believe. Lord, our prayer is that we too would have faith to believe even when we cannot see. So the question today for us, church, do you believe? It's a simple question. It's a clear question. But it's a question that's unmistakably asked by Christ in this text to Martha. And I would ask it to us today, church. Do you truly believe that Jesus is who He says He is and that He's able to do what He says He's going to do?